Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. Hello and welcome everyone. My name is Minouche Shafiq and I'm the Director of London School of Economics and Political Science. And I'm delighted to welcome you all to this event where we're hosting Ray Dalio at the LSE. Now, Ray Dalio has has led an extraordinary life. He grew up in a middle-class home in Long Island. His father was a musician, his mother was a homemaker, and he fell in love with markets at the age of 12 after buying his first stock with the caddy money that he had. And he promptly tripled it, identifying an early comparative advantage. He founded Bridgewater in 1975, and it grew into becoming the world's largest and most successful hedge fund. It succeeded even in difficult times, including the 2008 financial crisis, where they emerged successful because they learned the lessons of the Great Depression. And after 47 years of running the firm, he has now transitioned the management to a new generation of investment leaders, and he's continue, but he continues to be involved as an advisor and mentor to the firm. He now devotes his life to philanthropy and is deeply interested in protecting the oceans and addressing issues of education and opportunity gaps. And he's also become an educator, writing books and articles and economic studies uh, to try and share his ideas with the wider world to encourage other investors to be successful and to help all of us understand the world economy. Today, we're going to talk about his recent book, Principles for Dealing with a Changing World Order. And I'm going to let him lay out the arguments in that book and then have a few questions from me and then turn to the audience to ask your questions. I'll also flag that we've put a couple of videos that he has done in the chat, which you can follow after the talk if you're interested in learning more about his ideas. Ray Dalio, welcome to the LSE. No, thank you for having me. It's very exciting. So I wanted to start by asking, giving you a chance to kind of lay out the big arguments in your book, why you chose to to do that, to write this book, and as a macroeconomic investor, how the study of history has informed your approach, and what are the big themes that that drive the arguments in your book? I'll let you. I'll let you introduce it now. Okay. Well. <clears throat> Um, in investing over the last 50 years, I've experienced um, the phenomenon, I guess, of being surprised of about things that never happened to me in my lifetime before, but happened many times in history before. You referred to uh, my studying the Great Depression as being the reason for us doing very well during the 2008 financial crisis. Um, so there are such experiences and there are three experiences that are happening now and were happening, um, that never happened in my lifetime before, uh, to these degrees that led me to need to go back and study the last 500 years of history. And, and most importantly, the cycles of rises and declines of, empires, reserve currencies, and so on. So the three are, first, the financial and economic that comes from creating the most amount of debt 
and the greatest monetization of debt since the 1930s. That phenomenon and how it works itself through the system to affect currencies, to affect uh, inflation and so on, I needed to go back into history before the 30s and see that cycle and what it was like before that, the value of money. The second is internal conflict. We have the largest wealth gaps, the largest values gaps, the largest political gaps. This is all measurable um, since um, 1900, even including the 1930s, which, of course, they were enormous because if you look around the world, you had populism of the right and populism of the left. Uh, which became, you know, fascism and communism and so on. And that toppled four major democracies, chose to be autocracies as a result of this this populism. And so um, right now we have a similar situation in which there are unreconcilable differences between populists of the left and populists of the right, which call into question what democracy, how democracy will work, and the risks to those systems. And the third, of course, is the rise of a great power to challenging the existing great power and the existing world order. 1945, after the war, very classically, you have a war, you determine a dominant power. And then with that dominant power, there goes that world order, that new world order. In 1945, the United States accounted for uh, 50% of world GDP. It had 80% of the world's money, which was gold at the time. It had 80% of the world's gold. It had a monopoly on military power. And we began the American world order, which started, which was reflected in the United Nations being in New York, the IMF and the World Bank being in Washington, D.C., and so on. But as there is always the case, there is an evolution of that. And so there is a there are rising powers that take place to eventually challenge the leading power. And that creates the types of conflict, international conflict. So those three factors, the financial um, debt money creation one, the internal conflict, wealth gaps, values gaps one, and the um, rising world um, conflict one um, uh, drew my attention and said, I need to know and study more, no more than the 30s. And so that drew me back to study um, the last 500 years of history. And that's what's covered in the, the book and the lessons from that. So that was the motivation. But to make decisions now, I don't want to be a, I'm not a historian. I'm a practical guy who has to bet on the markets every day. So it's not, although very interesting, of course, but from a practical point of view, what is happening now is primarily driven by those three things, although I'll add two more in a minute because I've already talked too long, so I'll pause. I'll add two more when you're, whenever you want them. Why don't you go ahead and add the two more now? Okay. Well, in studying history, I learned that Acts of nature, particularly droughts, floods, and pandemics, had a bigger effect, an even bigger effect than these others, a comparable effect um, in terms of uh, bringing down uh, empires, in terms of uh, 
deaths and so on. So I didn't really have the full appreciation for those acts of nature. And I think it's very relevant to climate change pandemics and so on. It was, wow, it brought that to my attention. And the fifth for, um, factor, which is the most important factor, is an evolutionary factor, which is man's inventiveness. Uh, man's inventiveness, unlike the first three, which are very cyclical, man's inventiveness is evolutionary over a period of time. It raises living standards. It raises um, life expectancy, living standards. So um, if you were to see, let's say, what, what happens, and it's on the cover of my book, is a diagram that there's evolution, which you know sort of moves along like that. And then around them, those first three move in big cycles. Yeah. The first three work together to reinforce themselves, either in improvement or deterioration, work together in order to produce what I call the big cycle. And that big cycle is of rises and declines, which goes from periods of uh, world order changes, domestic order changes, wars and revolutions, to periods of prosperity that have improvements, to periods of excess, excess in debt, money creation, excess in wealth gaps, excess in alienation, and excess, and conflicts internationally to produce the next cycle. So that's what it looks like to me. So I want to probe a little bit because you in the book you're, you you develop a set of metrics that you use to measure an empire's power. And education is the first, and I'm guessing it's partly linked to what you just said around inventiveness and how human inventiveness helps promote power and, and economic progress. Could you say a little bit more about the role of education and how you chose the metrics and rankings that you used for your analysis? Well, <clears throat> um, yes, to be clear, I didn't start with any preconceptions. Um, I mean, I do have views which I think are just sort of common sense views, if you have a better education and you have higher levels of civility and you improve your competitiveness, you'll learn more, you'll become wealthier, more powerful, that kind of thing. But I, I, I did the measurements. And so in the book, there are 18 different measurements um, and they're just sort of the common sense measurements, measures of productivity, share of world GDP, those a number of those. And then um, I line them up because um, I'm, um, I'm into measurements. <laughs> measurements keep objectivity. Measurements are the basis of even developing, seeing the cause effect relationships. I'm always looking 10 years in the future. I'm Well, I sometimes look shorter term than that, but I'm looking into the future by understanding the cause effect relationship. So back to education. Yes, what you see, of course, is that education is the leading, is the leading uh, indicator. So if you were to look around the world, as you see changes in relative education, you see that that follows. Uh, very much connected to that, though, is um, the cost of an educated person. Very good indicator. So it's not just the level of education, but what sometimes when that education becomes very costly, then you will see the movement go to someplace. Like, for example, India 
has it offers great value in the cost of an educated person. It's a good indicator. It's one of the good indicators. Levels of indebtedness are is a very good indicator for subsequent periods of growth. Then there are social measures and other measures. For example, corruption indexes. These are all now statistics. We can measure them going back a long time. When you have a higher level of corruption, it has a negative 52% correlation with the growth rate in the next 10 years. So these are all measurable, of course, education. But education, I don't just mean like knowing more, you know, uh, math, science, and so on. I also mean learning civility, learning how to behave well with each other. You can be very smart, but you don't understand how to work well in a society that works well. So though education, of course, is very important. And I wanted to ask you about China and where China is in the big cycles that you identify, and particularly given the fact that China has now reached a point where its population was expected to shrink for the first time in 60 years. And, and how important is that demographic change to where China is in, in the cycles that you've, that you've identified? Okay, I'll first deal with the broader China question, then I'll come to demographics. Um, on the broader China question, um, you'll see in the book, I also went back um, um, to the um, Qing Dynasty, which was 221, and I followed all the cycles. And you'll see that through history, China was um, more often than any other country, number one or two, and then it goes through the cycle. And so it had a cycle uh, which um, started um, really in the 18, early 1800s, particularly around 1840, when um, it was on um, almost on top of the world, but it was weak militarily because it was isolated and so on. And events, the British and other powers come in and they begin the hundred years of humiliation. And you see in that stock, that, that chart, you see a plunge in the power of that until uh, World War II, the Civil War then that they had, and then 1949. And then in each one of those measures, with big bumps along the way, you see um, a rise. And particularly <clears throat> um, in um, 1970, Mao dies in 76, Deng Xiaoping comes in in 78, and you then see two big policies, an open door policy and a reform policy that brought in more market economies. And you see from that point all the way through an explosive rise in the per capita, all the measures, mm -hmm. education, life expectancy. To put it in perspective, when I started go to China in 1984, I started per capita income since then has increased by 24 times. So if you use all the measures, you'll see them in the book, education, um, competitiveness, share of world GDP, their share of world GDP is comparable um, to the United States' share of world GDP, share of world trade, there's this 
considerably larger. China's a larger trading company. Technology development, all of those measures show that movement all the way up until now. And so now China is faced with some difficult issues. And if we choose to, we can get into those issues. But the force and the power and its approach, which is largely a semi-Confucian type of approach, is, has proven through history to be very powerful. As regards um, to um, your question of demographics, demographics um, is one of those, it's a particularly uh, difficult issue in China, not just because of the demographics. I believe that demographics are not necessarily the biggest, uh, a big problem if productivity increases faster. You know, output, uh, total output is number of workers times output per work hour. And so if you have productivity, you can raise living standards um, by, um, by having productivity that's greater than that. And so it doesn't necessarily mean the number of people or the productivity. Of course, it means that a smaller number of people have to support a population that's uh, older and so on. This is particularly challenging in China. And that is because the importance of the family and the single parent household. In other words, the social network, the family network is um, very important in China. And their lack of a pension system, an adequate pension system, is very problematic in China. So you have, um, let's say, a married couple, which is at the, trying to take care of four alive parents without a parent, uh, without a social system to be able to do that, even a healthcare system and so on. That is a very burdensome, problematic era, and you know, of Chinese population. That population over three um, over sixty five is like about three hundred fifty million people. Okay, so you're dealing with something that um, is um, an issue in China. There are other issues in China. There's a there's a nature issue. You know, always droughts and floods and um, and water is a big issue. But there are other issues. But I'm just answering your question on demographics. Certainly, demographics is an, a big issue in China. Yeah. But it sounds like from what you're saying, you don't think China has peaked from a growth and empire perspective, that its trajectory continues to be positive. In, in yes, it is um, in the uh, there are important problems now in China, which I'll touch on. And and then underneath that. Um, there is great progress in the development of technologies, education, healthcare, um, um, and and you know, and winners of technology wars are winners of wars. So yet there is there is a great power uh, that exists. Uh, the problems that they're uh, facing right now have to do uh, with um, there is a uh, a dead economic problem. Mm-hmm. which has to do with the uh, um, re- real estate problem um, and a debt problem because real estate is such an important part of their economy. It counts for about 25% of the economy and it accounts uh, for about 70% of savings because a lot of people save in real estate. 
And so the wealth effect that that's having as it passes through is passing through their economy to have an effect on that. Um, as I mentioned, acts of nature have historically been very important, and particularly in China. They've experienced many pandemics. This pandemic, I'm sure in their, in their minds, this is another one of those pandemics. Yeah. And the pandemic um, has uh, of COVID has certainly played an important role in a number of ways, economically and beyond that. Um, and then other acts of nature, such as drought and water, are considerations that are happening. And then, of course, um, there is um, a, um, a leadership issue and the evolution of the questions of how exactly does the free enterprise system work and how exactly do, um, do wealth gaps. In other words, the issue of common prosperity and, um, and how does common prosperity work? I think many countries, the United States included, could do well with more common prosperity. Mm -hmm. And so, um, but how that works has been a question mark. Um, I think more doubt than actual reality. And then the issue of small being better than big. In other words, breaking up technology companies or changing the power of technology companies and encouraging smaller technology companies and less and a very strong top-down approach to the management of that. And that has political issues and other issues. These are these are issues that exist now as are, is the world environment. So the Chinese recognize the risks, just like uh, most other people recognize the risks of war, different types of war. There are five kinds of war. There's a trade war, technology war, geopolitical influence war, a trade, uh, a capital war related to an economic war, and then there's a military war. All of those risks are increasing. And so that those factors together are playing a role to dampen the um, Chinese economy now. I view most of those, I believe, anyway, we'll see, as more transitory and that the power of what they're doing underneath that surface is still very strong. So you, you've brought me into a very nice segue to another empire and another war, which is what's happening in Russia and Ukraine. How do you think about what's happening in Russia and Ukraine in the context of your framework? of the rise and fall of empires and what's happening with the world order. How do you think about Well, of, of course, um, economic power and military power um, are, are one power. They're essential. The collapse of the Soviet Union was due to the fact that um, they couldn't spend the money, that economically it collapsed. Then the Soviet Union was and Russia today is uh, not a significant economic power, although it is a nuclear power and it is a military power. The military extends beyond nuclear. It includes um, cyber. It includes other types of uh, uh, powers. Um, so alone, um, it is. Um, it was faced with the classic dilemma of um, what it per perceived as an existential threat due to um, two things, really. 
uh, the movement of uh, NATO countries east after um, after the Cold War. And the other issue is um, the re relatives in the Ukraine, uh, because almost everybody who lives in Moscow has relatives who live in, in, in the Ukraine. And that those issues and so on um, became, from their perspective, an economic issue, an existential issue. And of course, then there is the um, that conflict. So history has shown Russia has always had this conflict and the borders. So we go back to Napoleon, we go back to the wars, we see it, and we see kind of a repeat of that particular uh, element of dynamics. But of course, alone, it is not an act, act uh, adequate power, um, but it has um, weapons that are dangerous. So uh, I, the way I see it is, um, uh, the, the, in the beginning of this war, wow, only seven months ago, um, you know, there were uh, three questions. Um, the, the, the first question uh, is um, what the impact of uh, the West sanctions um, would be in the war. Um, and um, in the early stages of this, almost up to here, um, not as much, not as, not as much power, the, in other words, economically, the currency and so on, has a corrosive effect, people are leaving and so on, but there was um, only a modest de decline in production and so on. Certain conditions uh, matter, but not, not as much. Um, there was the question of um, if um, uh, Putin loses, uh, will he win, will he lose? Win represents controlling the eastern part of the Ukraine, uh, not having the bad devastation sanctions, and remaining on the world stage, such as going to the G20 meeting and so on. Um, and so we saw that by and large, in those respects, he was winning, but he was losing shock shockingly militarily in ways that um, surprised everybody, I think. Um, so, um, and, and then we had the question as how other countries would align. And it's very clear how other countries align. Um, so uh, by and large, NATO countries are aligning against the Soviet Union, uh, against Russia. But if you look at uh, around the world, um, China, India, Indonesia, Brazil, we could list them, um, are not aligning that way. Now we have the existential issue. The Wow, the military um, uh, winning and the... And the um, a uh, sense of um, uh, morale, um, the loss of morale, the loss of equipment, and so on. And that raises then um, the existential risks. So the way that I, uh, and then the question was, was China going to be drawn into this one way or another, particularly th through American sanctions? Or what? how would it behave in this? Because that could have expanded. The relationship between China and Russia, as you know, is very close. It has, has a lot aligned. Um, so we're, uh, we're seeing that transpire. I, I would say that 
So now we are in a classic case of um, the existential risk to Putin and Russia and um, whether you get escalations and the capacity of escalations. I don't believe they will work, but they're dangerous. And then also there's the danger of um, the risk that um, Russia falls and Putin leaves at the same time that most people on in NATO would think about that as being an advantageous thing. Um, I was speaking with Henry Kissinger. I learn a lot from other people. I'm lucky in that way. And as Henry Kissinger was pointing out that that would be very much analogous perhaps to uh, Saddam Hussein in Iraq falling and a create a great void. So we're right now um, at um, that um, that point, that very risky point, which will be resolved soon. And then, of course, we have um, the conflict with China, which is also at a very risky point. These are no longer countries like Afghanistan or Iraq. These are now big world powers. And we are dealing with existential issues, and they are fighting in various ways uh, right at the edge. So it, in much the same way as uh, World War I, the early stages prior to World War I, or prior to World War II, it's a very much analogous of that. And the fact that it is happening when the other two factors are happening, the financial one, and producing the stagflation, and the internal conflict one. Um, again, these ring in my ears uh, for what has happened before. So I'm going to ask you, we've got lots of questions coming in from the audience, but I'm going to ask you two investor questions. The first I have to ask you, because we just had the a massive fall in sterling uh, over the last 24 hours, which has now fallen further than at any time in history since the creation of the US dollar, almost at parity with the dollar. And it would be great to just get your take on what's happened uh, with sterling and the yeah, UK. As, um, as always, I really like to try to convey cause effect relationships mechanics, so, because everything that happens happens because of causes and cause effect relationships. What's happening now in sterling, and, and by the way, could happen in a number of countries, um, is very similar to what happened to sterling in the ERM breakup in 1992, which is when the debt assets that you're holding, bonds or somebody's assets, and when um, there is a supply-demand imbalance so that, let's say, a, a government has to sell bonds, has to sell a certain amount, and there's not buyers on the other side for that amount, that there has to be, uh, that imbalance has to be resolved. Now, in the 92 ERM realignment, there was a, a fixed exchange rate and as a result, the dynamic is interest rates rise to the, the level where it's intolerable. And when it's intolerable, it can't rise. And so there needs to be the depreciation to make the currency so cheap that the balance of payments improves. In other words, the balance 
money can go into sterling to buy goods, services, or financial assets. And so the asset, whatever they're buying, has got to become so cheap. And that can happen through the currency or through the price adjustment by, by the depreciation. So that's the dynamic. And it's a world dynamic. As you look to um, um, Europe, I think, in particular, and particularly, uh, let's say, Italy, for example, it's, uh, it's analogous that there is a, and by the way, it's true in the United States, there is so much more spending than there is income. And that means that bonds have to be sold, that debt. So think about it in the United States. 5% of GDP, the government will run a deficit about 5% of GDP. That means they'll need to sell bonds of about 5% or debt of about 5% of GDP. And the Federal Reserve said that they're going to sell or have run off 5% of GDP's worth of the balance sheet. That means 10% of GDP, a huge amount of GDP, a large number has to be sold. There are not corresponding buyers for that amount. That means that mechanistically, um, either uh, rates rise, the cost of money rises, and the way that that balance is achieved is private credit contracts, okay? So um, in order to bring that in balance, that balance. And so when private credit contracts, economies contract. And so what's going on in Sterling is um, a panic, not, not a, a logical movement out of um, this asset in which there's not a control on the supply of the debt that's being put out there. And that imbalance, which is also representative by and large, look at the Euro and Euro denominated assets. Look at the interest rate you get. Look at the inflation rate you have. And, and so that's a risk and it's a risk for most of the major currencies. Hi. I'm interrupting this event to tell you about another awesome LSE podcast that we think you'd enjoy. LSE IQ asks social scientists and other experts to answer one intelligent question, like, why do people believe in conspiracy theories? Or, can we afford the super rich? Come check us out. Just search for LSE IQ wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the event. So let me just ask a final question. Macro hedge funds, usually one thinks of them as people who are always thinking about the short-term future. You're very unusual because you're a macro, you run a macro hedge fund, which based on your thinking about the long-term history, how do you translate these views, these historical lessons into investment strategies? Um, whatever works, works. You know, I do whatever works. <laughs> And and, um, and and I would say, I would not have understood what's now happening in the cases that you're bringing up unless I saw it repeatedly through history. So I'm like a doctor who wants to see many cases, and and, and I can't just limit them to the ones that are in my lifetime. Yeah. So I have to see. It's like let's say you're a doctor and you're dealing with. Um, cancer and you watch as it stages there's a typical case and then there are many other cases 
And what I need to do is I study them, I need to measure them, and I need to quantify and test my decision-making in order to understand that. If I didn't understand what was what I what we're talking about and the last 500 years of history, I can't be in the position I'm in. We this year are are very significantly profitable. I mean, our, our uh, flagship Pure Alpha Fund is up about 30 percent. That that's happening today. That's happening now mm. in terms of that. So that understanding can only be achieved by the, for me, the exercises that I'm going through and the um, lessons that I'm trying to pass along in the book. It's interesting. Of course, always the best doctors are the ones who've seen the most cases or have done the most operations. And so they're constantly looking at the data must be a big part of it. So let me turn to some questions from the audience. The first one is from Maximilian Rudolph, who's an MSc student at LSE in risk and finance. And he says, you often say that knowing how to deal well with what you don't know is much more important than anything you know. And also that you always start by, quote, eliminating left tail risk. So how do you deal with your not knowing and that left tail risk? Oh, um, yeah. I had an experience. I don't know how much time you have, um, uh, whether you have time for a story or not. But sure. let me, tell us a story. Um, um, in 1980 and 81, I had calculated that American banks had given uh, lent more money to emerging countries than those countries would be able to pay back and that there would be a debt crisis. And with that debt crisis, I expected an economic crisis. And um, I got attention for that controversial point of view. And um, um, in in August 1982, uh, Mexico defaulted and a number of countries defaulted. Mm -hmm. And I thought we were going to have a big economic crisis. And I could not have been more wrong. Mm -hmm. Mexico defaulted, almost the day Mexico defaulted, was the exact bottom in the stock market for a big bull market that followed. And I was just really, it was early days for me starting Bridgewater. And it was very painful. I lost money for me. I lost money for clients. I was so broke, I had to borrow $4,000 from my dad to help to pay for my family bills. Wow. And very painful. Hardless. And it was one of the best things that ever happened to me. Mm-hmm. Okay. It was one of the best things that happened to me because it gave me the humility that I needed to balance with my audacity and cause changes in my behavior. And those changes in my behavior were first, to know I never know, to know I never know, and to try to find the smartest people I can who will disagree with me and stress test my thinking. So it taught me radical open-mindedness. And it taught me how I could substantially reduce my risks without reducing my returns. Like I, I felt like I was at, uh, uh, literally, I felt like I was at the edge of a jungle and I was a, a point in my life and I could say, risk and return go together. And I don't want to do these risks like this anymore. But if I, then I won't have the returns um, and I can't have an extraordinary life. So I felt like my choice was like, if uh, if I could get to the others, I've had to go through this jungle, faced with this choice. Do you go through the jungle, which you can be killed, or do you, um, um, but if you get to the other side, you have the greatest life, or do you not go into that jungle? 
That's how I literally felt. And I realized the way to do it. And um, uh, I learned about diversification, how I could literally cut my risks by a factor of 80% without reducing my return. I learned financial engineering to be able to do that well. Okay. So, wow, same returns with with 80%. I learned also that when going into that jungle with um, in which there are all the things, to go in it with people who can see things differently than I could see and um, and and who were on the same mission and that would watch out for each other and so on. And that experience became so good that I didn't want to get to the other side of the jungle. I still enjoy being in the jungle and playing the game. So that painful experience taught me, okay, how do you deal with what you don't know? First, you don't want to have concentration, uh, such concentration. And you can diversify equally good um, uncorrelated bets to be able to substantially reduce your risk. And, and that open-mindedness to see what you can't see. So you're prepared for that. And that point was really the, um, that was the turning point. From that point forward, you know, everything fell into place and continues to in that and those ways fall into place. Those are the lessons I'm trying to pass along. Okay, very good. Let me turn to the next question from Ramina Bassi, who's an LSE alum of economic, did economics and management in 2022, so a recent graduate. To what extent does your thesis rely on the premise that people will continue to seek centralized bureaucracy and collective collaboration to administer their lives? Are modern technologies like cryptocurrencies and blockchain questioning that thesis? Is global influence still measured accurately with our traditional means? Or has the nature of influence also changed and required new metrics? Yeah, that's not my theory about. So just to take that off the table, um, that would not be a good characterization of anything that I'm saying. Yeah. So you don't um, require centralization for your... No, no, no. Decentralization. Through history, things have fallen apart. Decentralization, then you have centralization. And the way that it operates, the thing that's happened over time is we've all become closer. It used to be that it would take, in a day, you could travel 25 miles. Today, you go the other side of the world. We're all connected and so on, and technologies matter. But um, I, I, I have you know, no such um, theory about that. I'm just, what I do is I look at the cause effect relationships and then I plot how is actually happening relative to the template. So I have a template, like a doctor seeing many cases, is it stage four cancer or something? That, that's a mean a certain outlook and there's better and worse ways of handling it and so on. So I, I and I plot and I understand just very much like a doctor would. Okay. Next one is from Henning Jakobsen, an LSE alumna from 2019, who says, hi, Ray, fascinating hearing your thoughts on the world order. How do you assess the polish, policy shifts we've seen in the UK mini budget? building on the question I asked you earlier, the market's reaction to it, the falling pound, higher treasury yields, FTSE plunging. And do you adhere to the claim that the UK is behaving like an emerging market economy? I'd be particularly interested to hear how you assess the UK's world position through the framework of metrics and principles. Thanks. Okay, a number of questions. I think I asked the, the first two. Yes. If you don't have a if you don't have a reserve currency, particularly, but even if you do to some extent, there's a supply demand 
that will be manifest in either a balance of payments and it'll either depreciate. And so if you produce too much borrowing and you can't lend, uh, just the mechanic, the mechanics of that mean what is happening now. And that's happened repeatedly through time. And in that regard, it is like an emerging country. Mechanistically, it's like an emerging country because of, you know, what in a, in a, in a country that doesn't have a reserve currency and it is in its currency and it still has to operate in the world in a reserve currency, there's the mechanical dynamic of that. And so what causes inflationary depressions or inflationary contractions is that dynamic. So yes, it is analogous mechanistically. It's sort of um, analogous to that. Um, in terms of um, where the U where the UK is in its uh, existence is um, you know it's measured by the size of its economy and its uh, military power most importantly and um, it is not a um, it is not a leading power um, it is a um, it has you know many strengths uh, but it is um, you know in in a lifetime in the queen's lifetime, in my lifetime. It's an example of how things change. So um, yes, it is not a major power. It is, and its identity um, in that, that world is, um, in the world is, uh, you know, is questionable. Is it part of what, who are its allies? How, what does it have to offer? It's, um, you know, that's what it is. Okay. Different question from Matthias Puzovetsky uh, on education. Usually when a society becomes more productive and therefore wealthier, people tend to focus on other aspects rather than on education. Is there a way to develop a framework to prevent the decline of education in golden ages? I think he's sort of oh. the age of decadence, you know, <laughs> or is it part of the natural human process? It's hard to imagine a society that grows ad infinitum. Right. I'm totally in agreement with him of, and we see it in the charts and uh, in the book. Um, it is it is that dynamic, and we could take how the Dutch Empire was passed to the British Empire and the British Empire and so on and so forth. Um, yes, that's the dynamic. And then the question is, how do you get out of it? Um, some countries, but very rare exceptions. Um, have managed to sustain that pretty well. If um, Singapore, Singapore, to some extent, Switzerland, um, and so on, um, because as the, one gets richer, and also as you change the generation who has never been in that position, just like you know uh, the saying about three generations of a wealthy family, mm. there is that dynamic that takes place. And how do you do it? Um, um, whatever it is that conveys the messages of, of the consequences and the ephemeral nature of wealth and power and, the, and whatever it is that creates the recognition that the greatest capital is human capital. And so to invest in human capital, the capacity of individuals to earn money and be productive, that is the thing that's most important. That's why education is so important. But it is correct. Uh, and I use, I saw it in the evolution of, for example, 
when a number of countries went from a six-day work week to a five-day work week, mm. you know, um, and it's understandable. When you reach a certain living standard, it's a natural question of to say, well, I, um, what's life for? Mm. I should enjoy myself. I shouldn't work so hard. But there are also people at, uh, you know, at your heels. I think the question is, I think it's very measurable. In other words, are you spending more than you are earning? And are, do you have more assets than you have liabilities? What does your income statement and balance sheet look like? Yeah. And if that could be top of mind, you know, uh, in civilizations uh, in history, they changed their monetary system to have a, um, a, a link to gold or a um, not a fiat monetary system because of dealing with this. But they still create a lot more credit than there is money in the bank. And then what still happens is throughout history have the breakdown. So I don't know an easy way to make that happen other than viscerally maybe experience that those things in the form of maybe, I don't know whether it's movies or, or what it is that we experience that. Um, when I look at something like Singapore and the culture in Singapore, it's a small country. Yeah. Um, the ability to maintain that culture and a bit constant awareness of it, I think, is something that is the key. Yeah, yeah. I'm not yeah. sure I can deliver the key. Yeah. <laughs> well, here's another one from Leon Su. What advice would you give to students who are very passionate about getting into in the investment field, especially for macro research and investing? Uh, play the markets. I'll tell, tell you something. <laughs> uh, 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 no, while you're studying. <laughs> Uh, You're going to say no, yes. I, I, no, I think it's the opposite. I think, uh, I'll tell you, I, I, I deal with uh, economic policymakers and uh, and then academic um, economists. And I would say um, economics is just markets. Okay, they're one and the same. Uh, it's the market for anything, economics. And then you will not understand how that um, works any more than you will understand how to ride a bike by reading about it and dealing with it academically. <laughs> if you want to learn, you have you should play the markets and you will experience how well you learn. I believe that there should not be any, I think in school, you should have uh, market games and you should be able to beat the markets. And I don't think there should be any economic policymaker who can't beat the markets. Because if you <laughs> That's can't- That's a very if, high bar. <laughs> no, 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 no. Because if you, if not, the, the, all the markets do is reflect the consensus point of view. Now, if you're in a position of sitting there as a policymaker and you- don't know more than the consensus that's expressed in the price. Okay. How can you be a, a just? I don't know. Just leave it to the markets. I don't know. It'll go through its thing. How, where is your skill level? Where's your test? Where is your practicality? You have to be practical. If you want to be practical in being able to deal with the markets, you've got to deal with the markets. Fantastic. So many economists, as you probably know, uh, you know, argue that over the long term, you can't beat the markets because all the information is rationally expressed. That's so, price. That's so <laughs> I'm just telling you. I, okay. I mean, it's, 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 it's so, it's so, it's so, it's so stupid. Um, um, 
because that assumes that some people aren't smarter than other people or some people don't have a better way. It's like a poker game. For the aggregate, it's like a poker game, zero sum, okay? Um, the markets the markets have alpha and beta. So beta is the return of an asset class. Okay, that'll happen and has its intrinsic thing. But whether you can produce alpha becomes zero sum. So the fact that it's zero sum means that in aggregate that can't happen, but individually it can happen. It happens, right? Because smarter people will take money away from those who are less smart. It happens all the time. Yes, yes, no, absolutely. Otherwise we wouldn't have an investment industry. <laughs> well, and you wouldn't have also value added created you wouldn't have productivity. Let's say if the market for, everything's a market. Some are liquid markets, some are illiquid markets. But if there's a property developer or there's somebody else, we have a system in which there are resources that you borrow money. When you borrow money, you enter a market. When you decide that you're going to put a product out, you are creating a market. You are dealing with the market. And there's an economics to that. The fact that we securitize something doesn't mean that that's the only market, okay? There is a market. You're creating a business. When you create a business, you're creating a market. You're dealing with the market. And the ability, the smart, will take money away from the not so smart, right? And so that's just the way it is. Okay. Let me ask you a question about the global order and its future. There's a lot of debate going on about have we reached peak globalization? Are we moving to a kind of dual system, one dominated by China, one dominated by the US, a sort of dollar zone, RMB zone? Or others who argue that, you know, we need a new multilateral order whereby we reinvigorate international cooperation and try and keep globalization at current levels. What's your view on the big trends that will shape the world order in the, in the next few years? Um, I think that um, there are very, very strong pressures uh, in both directions and that over the um, shorter intermediate period, um, there are anti-globalization uh, pressures, but over the longer term, um, that globalization um, will uh, be more dominant. So, um, and I, I think that because um, you have a you have a a, a trade off um, that two forces. The obvious force of globalization, we can communicate so easily. You can't almost create the barriers. It's very difficult for nations to create the barriers that um, exist to prevent globalization from taking place. But they have a great deal of power and they have a big motivation because of, of wars, all these different types of wars, economic wars and so on. So that there is a pressure to create self-sufficiency, um, China, Russia, um, the United States and so on are all moving toward the, creating that more isolation and so on, and, and the barriers and the protections and all of that, that's very anti-globalization. Uh, Wealth gaps uh, is creating um, populism of each side. That is very 
anti-globalization in terms of, um, you know, okay, uh, is globalization going to be good for me and what it means and will I fight for it? So that, that those are forces that are very strong forces right now. And I think they're probably the stronger forces over the, over the near term. But simultaneously, that communication and the power that comes from being able to exchange ideas and be able to do things will happen simultaneously is almost almost the inability to prevent it for you know for example i just uh, you know saw on the news um um that um, um elon musk in iran yeah. um is um making Inter- providing that, internet access yeah that he can buy pe- so that iranians now it's not it's not yet practical because you got to get them these big devices and how do you get them into the country but also but you're seeing those kinds of developments to get around those barriers and so on and i think the technologies and other things are going to be powerful forces how that is all manifest, I can't say, but I don't think the game is over. Okay, I'm gonna ask you one last question, uh, which is a combination of a question asked by Irina Ivan and Marios Yanis, both of whom are LSE students, uh, about, you know, you talking a lot about internal conflicts being a huge problem. And uh, one of them is asking, uh, how do you see the role of government actors versus private actors in helping solve complex social and environmental problems? And the other one actually is, I'm, is kindly referring to a recent book that I wrote about why the world needs a new social contract. And unless we find a way to resolve some of these internal social tensions in our societies, we won't sustain support for an open world order. How do you see that? How do you see, how do you see us being able to resolve these internal conflicts, and what's the role of the private sector and the government in in doing that? Well, um, the circumstances is everybody's got an opinion about everything, and think that um, a- anytime a leader has got an opinion that is different from them, they want to tear it down and fight. And and I think it's very difficult um, to. Um, in an orderly way, get to where we agree that there needs to be a new contract. We need to have the reform of the system. We can get into how the system, but the system needs to be reformed. And in history, um, that has usually happened almost always by these arguing of how and having a fight Mm -hmm. and then having a winner, and then the winner gets to determine that. And so I think that the more likely path is that won't happen in an orderly way. And that history shows that there is a revolutionary change to create a new system that happens. Um, As far as how we do it, if we try to do it, um, I think like, um, um, I think you need... um, you need smart bipartisanship and people willing to compromise to give up for the recognition that the collective better that good is uh, in their interest versus the alternative. Mm-hmm. So I know in um, I have a you know a, a principle: if you worry, you don't have to worry. 
And if you don't worry, you need to worry. Because if you worry about the things that we're worrying about, perhaps um, that brings that about. I believe you need a strong middle, okay? I think in our political systems, we don't have a strong enough middle. I believe that you need bipartisanship and a strong middle. And I think like, how can I, and compromise and smart, because you have to re-engineer the system. Uh, Very remote that you're going to a chance of having that. But if you look at it, one of the reasons I'm excited about passing the book along is that it makes clear these choices. And so if you worry about what we are talking about, those types of conflicts, those types of financial problems, enough that you realize that their consequences are so terrible that you can do something by being smart and bipartisan um, and and building that strong middle. Um, My hope would be that to some little extent that that would um, move us in that direction. Because we, you and I agree that we need to have a new social contract. But nobody can agree on every aspect of that contract. Right. No, very true. And you're absolutely right. Social contracts get get changed in moments of crisis. You know, it was the Great Depression that brought the New Deal. It was World War II that created the modern welfare state. These are these are huge upheavals that mean that the terms of the way society works together get renegotiated. Yes, if I was in the position of being a head of state, um, what I would do is first I'd have a bipartisan cabinet. I would draw from both sides, bipartisan, smart people. And I would then have them deal with their extremists. So the majority of the population can be moderate and you have moderate and have them deal with their extremists. And then I would create something like a um, 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 a Manhattan Project type of thing. Manhattan Project, you know, when we were working uh, for for the war and atomic bomb and all that, um, in which the smartest people get them together from both sides, moderate, and say, you have to build a system. You have to reform the system. You have to reform the system so that it provides um, much more equal opportunity. Okay. It's got to work well for the majority of people who appreciate it. And so you have to have an engineering system. For example, capitalism as we now have it doesn't take into consideration the all-in cost the cost of pollution, the cost of other these other things. So if you work back and engineer back from what are the goals, that it works well for the majority of people to create, um, and these measures, these health measures that I get, education and such things, and you have a bipartisan group, and I almost don't care what they agree on. In other words, I don't, I, I'm the opposite. Yeah. Rather than everybody demanding that they have to agree on everything, I'm sort of th- saying that if they can reach an agreement together and pursue that together and get that so- sort of support, I would be um, in favor of it. I think that would be great progress. So those are the only things I could think of about actually going from where we are to that social contract and order. It's interesting. As I listen to you, uh the words you said earlier that describe the approach you've just 
described is radical open-mindedness of being open to many, many points of view and bringing them together on a common mission. And that investment philosophy that you've been so successful with uh, is also the, the approach you would take to solving some of the world's economic and social problems. So I, I, I'm gonna hold on to that idea of radical open-mindedness. Uh, I think it's very, very powerful. Ray Dalio, thank you so much for joining us today and for sharing with us the ideas in your book. I would encourage everyone to have a look at the links in the chat. Uh, and, uh, and we will uh, continue to pursue thinking about these issues about the changing world order with radical open-mindedness. Thank and you. And if so they don't much. want to read the book, uh, there's a brief um, uh, video of, well, 40 minutes, um, that is on YouTube. That's, um, you know, the quick and easy way to uh, access most of those uh, thoughts. So either way. Perfect. And we've put that link into to YouTube on the chat. So I'd encourage the audience to, to have a look at that if they want the executive summary version. Excellent. Well, thank you to the audience for great questions and for your participation. And thank you again, Ray, for, uh, for an excellent talk. We really enjoyed it. Thank you for having me. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the LSE Events Podcast on your favorite podcast app and help other listeners discover us by leaving a review. Visit lse.ac.uk forward slash events to find out what's on next. We hope you join us at another LSE event soon.